This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you need to know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org, secondmissionfoundation.org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal's always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. Check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. My guest this week was writer Larry Freeland. You may know Larry from his books, uh, Chariots in the Sky, or his first book in his Legacy of Honor trilogy called The Patriarch, which just came out. Uh, Larry writes historical fiction, I'll talk about that in a second because I think it's an incredibly challenging medium to write in. Um, but Larry himself has had a hell of a life, and it was a real pleasure to sit down and talk to him about it. He was um, a Vietnam-era veteran, or a Vietnam veteran. I don't know why I said Vietnam-era. He was a Vietnam veteran, and his uh, he enlisted in the Army in 1968, ended up becoming an infantry officer, and then before they could get him out of the United States— became a helicopter pilot flying Chinooks, and that's what he did in Vietnam. While he was in Vietnam, he was shot down three separate times. He earned the uh, Bronze Star. He learned the Distinguished Flying Cross. Um, he had a lot of honorifics thrown his way. He um, It was an eventful year. Um that kind of intimacy with life and death stakes it can't help but make Larry, I think, a good writer, especially writing something that I think the danger with historical fiction is you either write it as a historian or you write it as a fiction writer. And Larry clearly has a deep love of history, but he writes um, threading in moments of real sensitivity um, especially because in his book, The Patriarch, uh, it deals with World War I. Um, not only a war he didn't serve in, but talking so much about ground combat, trench warfare, etc. And um, obviously his combat experience was in the air. But understanding life and death stakes, understanding the human body when pushed to the extremes or to the breaking point, literally, um, Larry writes and can write very graphically about the trauma of hand-to-hand combat and of seeing men die up close. 
and then find a way to thread that into the larger narrative of World War One, the characters that inhabited it, and the um, experience, albeit fictional in his case, um, but the experience of his characters uh, as veterans when they return from the war. Um, it was a great time talking with him. Larry, you know, as I said, he enlisted in 1968 at a time when the country was in, the United States was in real turmoil. So I felt like it would be negligent of me not to ask him and compare and contrast the these two very different times in turbulent United States history between then and now. And I won't give any spoilers about that, but um, I was, it was a privilege to sit down and talk with Larry. Um, it's worth noting that Larry got even the impetus to write from Oliver Stone and from specific encouragement that Oliver Stone gave him. I don't think that's a minor detail. Um, and, uh, you know, for someone that worked for almost 30 years in the banking business, uh, Larry certainly has had a, um, a very enviable path as a writer, um, churning out consistently well-received work in a very difficult medium. And that's kind of a motif of his life. He's done incredibly difficult things and accomplished things and done them with, it seemed to be a stiff upper lip, resolve, grit, and um, excellence. That's a hell of a life. I mean, talk about a functional veteran. So it was a privilege to talk with him, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Larry Freeland's Profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Larry. Thank you. Uh, looking <laughs> forward to it. <laughs> we'll see if that holds by the end of it. No, I'm just kidding. Listen, this is, uh, I, I'm really uh, glad we could sit down and talk for a little bit. The book is uh, Legacy of Honor Part One, mm-hmm. is one heck of an ambitious book. So I just got to start with saying, how long were you working on that? How long have you been working on that book? That book, uh, Probably took about a year to uh, to write it. That's it. Uh, wow. Yeah, and then the editing and everything, you know, ran for several months. Uh, it's a story that I didn't carry around with me. Basically, had a lot of bits and pieces, so it was like, in some extent, it was like connecting some dots to to make the story flow. But a lot of research was required to really pull in all those different events and things. But so yeah, I so, just dived in. Yeah, listen, that's amazing. Um, it's it's I say that's an ambitious piece of work because I think historical fiction, I, I think it's a it's one of the toughest mediums, I think, to write in. I think people mm-hmm. that write in it are either fascinated with the history or want to fantasize about specific characters in a time period. And generally, I think most people want to focus on the history and want to almost get deep into the history with it, the amount of research, I mean, you said you were, you were carrying around pieces of it for a long time. How much of this was based on, and, and the overall concept of having three generations, following three generations through different wars, 
is based on your experience because of your father, your experience, et cetera? Well, the best way to probably answer that is simply say that I came from a military family, basically. My father was a career Air Force officer 30 years, but his father, my grandfather, uh, he wasn't a career man. He did. Uh, he served in uh, America out of it. I mean, the uh, Rainbow Division, World War One, the doughboy in the trenches. And uh, I was close to him, uh, particularly as a younger fella. And uh, so I, I learned a little bit about his experiences from being around him and as some of his buddies back in the 50s and early 60s. And then, of course, my parent, my father grew up on air bases 30 years uh, in the service for him. And then I went in for five years and my middle brother, Tom, ended up going to the Navy as a pilot, retired as a ca captain after 27 and a half years, had a bunch of uh, different experiences in his tours. And my younger brother went in the Army two years uh, and then I went and worked for the government as a special agent, retired at 50. Then ended up volunteering three times to go over with private firms, twice to Iraq and once to Afghanistan. So three generations, all of us served in some capacity. All of us saw a little action. Uh, so it's you know just it was kind of in my uh, my background or my bones a little bit, if you yeah. might say. And my first book that I wrote was Chariots, based mm -hmm. loosely on my experiences in Vietnam. And that I carried that story around a long time. And I had a gestation going back into the late 80s, early 90s. And we can maybe talk about that later if you like. Sure. But uh, I had so much fun, maybe the wrong way. I really enjoyed that and kind of surprised myself and my publisher when it went out and it started doing really quite well. He said, well, there mm. he said, seemed to do pretty good with that. You got any other ideas for another book? I said, well, you know, maybe. So I bounced this off about, you know, maybe writing a trilogy, uh, following one family's three generations, World War One, then the next one, World War Two and Korea and so on. And he said, you know, that sounds pretty good. So he had me to write up a concept memo, which I did and uh, so on and so forth. He says, well, this, let's go for it. So we signed a contract for a, a three book deal a trilogy. And I uh, wrote the first one, which is Legacy, and uh, it's out there now, and it's in its early phases, but it's doing really quite well, and I've gotten a lot of good feedback. Book two in the trilogy, uh, I turned over the manuscript, draft manuscript, about a month and a half ago, mm. and we've been working on that. It's in the middle of the editing process now. Mm. We hope to get that out um, probably by the end of the summer at the latest. Uh, and uh, initial feedback from the editors is this is really, you know, really good work and uh, so on. So I've been very pleased with their feedback so far. But uh, that should hopefully go out late in the summer. And then I'm now working briefly on uh, drafting the initial part of book three, The Descendants. That's going to take uh, a pretty good while because uh, book one and book two I wrote in the first person. Um, historical fiction, and it's told through the eyes of the main character. Book three, I can't do that with three characters. <laughs> so it's going to basically have to be a uh, third person uh, and allows me to move around better and get into each character a little bit. Uh, so that's going to take a little more time. I, the, the oldest son is loosely based on me again. Uh, so I got a lot of history from that. My middle brother, Tom's career in the Navy, 
I've got to draw on a lot of research for that and some other things. And then my younger brother, Bob's, so I'll have to do the same thing. You know, I know a little bit about it. We were all three of us kind of interacted over the years. So sure. I don't know much about the specifics for their different engagements, if you will. Uh, I know a little bit, but unfortunately, they're both deceased now. So uh, I'm going to have to do a little more research to sure. you know, nail sure. down some stuff for that. But you know, we'll work on that and get that out maybe sometime late next year. So, Larry, let me ask the obvious question, and I'll start with mm-hmm. Chariots in the Sky. Why didn't you do what everyone else does and just write a nonfiction memoir of your time in? Why did you put the veneer of fiction over it? Uh, well, a couple of reasons. One, uh, I just didn't want to do something about myself. There's so many books out there <laughs> uh, that, you know, they write and it's, you know, it's, it's based on them. It's their memoirs or their uh biography or autobiography and they're great but what i wanted to do is pay homage to the helicopter pilots and the air crews and i wanted to uh, give a reader a uh, a trip in a helicopter with a crew and become the character and experience uh, what uh, in the case of my book tj uh, captain taylor st james went through uh, and i wanted TJ to pretty much in one year experience just about everything a helicopter pilot and crew could experience. Uh, put them in a lot of situations and, and, and get in and get out. And I, I dedicated it to the helicopter pilots and crews of the Vietnam War, some of the bravest men I've ever been around. Uh, so, and I wanted it to be a book about them. And that's why I did that. And I wanted it to be historical fiction because that gives you a little more, uh, I came to writing late in my life. So, I mean, I wasn't a writer. I was, <laughs> I was a banker and a finance sure. guy and so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, this being my first effort, I, I, I chose historical fiction because I'm also a history buff, uh, particularly Americans, uh, Americans involvement in the wars. I grew up around veterans, World War II and, and a younger boy, World War I guys and, and two. Korean War guys and uh, fellas, and I've known a lot of veterans up to this point in my life. So uh, historical fiction gave me a little more freedom. Uh, yeah. It is loosely based on my experiences, uh, but there's a lot of, it's it's based in fact too, like right. it takes place the first half in Lam San 719, which was a massive incursion into Laos, came at the end of the war. Uh, biggest helicopter operation of the war sustained the most casualties uh, for helicopter pilots in one operation and loss of aircraft. The numbers are just staggering. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> so I wanted to capture that and then, of course, finish off its tour a little bit in the second half of the book. Uh, Larry, can I ask, so, what did you find you could do with it being fiction versus, even if it wasn't a memoir, doing a historical account of helicopter pilots in the Vietnam War? Mm-hmm. You could have done that, too. But fiction, what did it allow you to do? Did it allow you to kind of allow the char- the readers to walk a mile in the character's shoes a bit more? Like, what, what was the, for the what was the rush? What was the payoff for you in doing fiction as opposed to doing some other nonfictional account? I wanted the reader to become TJ, and somewhere mm-hmm. in the book, just they're flying the airplane, they're going through rocket attacks, they're seeing their buddies die. They're, they're scared to death going into a hot LZ and stuff just coming at them from all directions. And I felt the best way to do that was to make it historical fiction first person. 
and give them a, a flavor for that uh, as a, and become the character. If it's a memoir or if it's an autobiography or a biography, you know, you can still maybe feel some of that, but you're, you're living another person's life. Mm, if you can yeah. become TJ, it's kind of like a part of you. Yeah. And so many reviews and feedback I've gotten over the, since it's been out is, is basically that they felt like in many cases, they felt like they were TJ or part of his crew and they were right there with them. And uh, that's what I wanted to capture. And apparently I did pretty good at that. <laughs> and you were, you were still working full time when you were writing the book, weren't you? Or was this after? Uh, the book itself? No, I was fully retired then. Okay. Uh, but you had been researching uh, for years beforehand. They're oh, yeah. compiling stuff. Okay. Yeah. In this case, a brief background on it. Uh, <clears throat> I served in Vietnam for a year and uh, I was in the army five years. When I uh, came back, like everybody, I just tried to forget about it and put everything away. And uh, During my tour, I kept a diary and my wife kept a diary and we came home when we got back together after the end of the year, we traded diaries and read them. So some of what's in that book, I could draw on from my diary a little bit. Of course, memories, wow, letters, that's tapes, yeah. experiences. So I had a wealth of stuff. But anyway, I forgot all about it. <clears throat> and I'm a big movie movie buff. And back in uh, 80, mid-late 80s, Oliver Stone came out with Platoon. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And I think most Vietnam veterans who saw that walked out of there. And I'm one of them uh, with my wife said, damn, man, I just came back from Vietnam again. <laughs> And uh, it reawokened a lot of stuff. And I thought he went personally, I thought he went a little over the top with the drugs and the stuff. But that was a part of the war, particularly towards the end. But I did think he kind of captured the essence of some of that experience. And uh, I thought, you know, this, it, he did the the uh, the grunts, if you will, the infantry men on the ground. Uh, I think he captured that pretty well. And I thought, you know, it'd be great if he could do uh, a movie about helicopter crews and pilot because mm. that was iconic to the war uh and uh he, i knew at the time being a movie guy that he was supposedly going to do three movies about vietnam and and uh, platoon was first so i wrote him a query letter and introduced myself and you know the vietnam veteran and had this idea and so on and so forth about possibly doing a uh, helicopter movie similar to platoon and i knew he was doing a three two more movies at some point and about a month or two later, he wrote me back and he said, well, yeah, I am. He says, I've already got number two, which all, he didn't tell me at the time, but of course, it was born in the 4th, 4th of July. July. Sure. And he had a third one, uh, but it wouldn't be about helicopters. But he said, you know, you got a good idea. He said, what you might want to do is, uh, and I would encourage you to do it, uh, is hook up with somebody that writes screenplays. and Because uh, I had approached him about the screenplay. And he said, uh, maybe you can uh, come up with one and then you you see what happens. He said, it's a tough road because Hollywood's bombed with screenplays all the time, unsolicited. And he said, so, but if you got a good storyline there, you got a good concept and, uh, you know, maybe it'll, uh, maybe someone will pick it up if you actually do it. So he recommended. Sorry sorry to interrupt, Larry. I just got to ask though, at this point, you were writing, you were still working full time. Like, am I correct? I mean, you, you had, you were just a guy with an idea at this point, right? Wow. Yeah, this was in wow. uh, late 89, uh, 88, 89. I was a bank executive at the time, doing that full time with a family. But, uh, you know, just had this 
I just had that idea and I thought, you know, wow. I wasn't envisioned writing it, but, uh, <laughs> wow. and he said, he said, Larry, just you know, go do it yourself. And I uh, gave me some ideas, some books to read and some contacts. And, uh, I said, yeah, but I, I put it all away at the time. And I thought, I just you know, don't want to deal with that. I'm not a writer. So, uh, then, uh, oh, I don't know. It was about maybe a year or so later. I said, you know, this isn't going away. I got this thing mm. in my mind about this story mm. and I want to tell it. So I, I did the research, spent about a year researching, reading and so on. And I ended up writing a screenplay and it was called The Flying Pachyderms. It was loosely based on, again, on my experience. And I wrote it through the point of view of a uh, Huey pilot. I was a Chinook pilot, but okay. Hueys, because they, they bore the brunt of it really sure. all the time. We were in and out of it a little more. Uh, so... Uh, that's what I did. And uh, I circulated it around a lot of people, took their feedback and everybody saying, you know, this is pretty good, Larry. Uh, you know, you might want to write a book out of it. You could really flush. Everybody said that. Write a book. Right. I said, no, mm. I don't want to write a book. I'm going to do a screenplay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh did the screenplay. I tried to uh, get some people to, uh, in Hollywood to pay attention to it and couldn't get it at the point. So I entered it in a screen contest here in Atlanta called the Southeast Screenwriters, and I got honorable mention. And I thought, well, I've got something here. Maybe somebody will pick me up. Nothing happened. So I wrote a letter, <laughs> query letter to 10 production companies out in Hollywood, heard from three of them. Uh, they wanted to see my screenplay. I sent it to them. Two got back to me and said, you know, not bad, but we're not interested. And then uh, built more pictures who did Bugsy and is still making movies. Mm -hmm. They were, they got back to me when they were interested, they elevated it. And we went back and forth uh, for a while there. They kept wanting to know more about it and everything got real close, almost got it optioned. So close. <laughs> <laughs> they said, well, Larry, you know, it's really good. Uh, but right now we're, we've decided to back off. We've got a war genre in post-production if it does well, we're going to do a sequel, which we've already got on the, you know, on the planning boards, and it could even spawn another one. And they said, but, you know, you know, keep moving on it because it's really it's good, and uh, you might get somebody to pick you up. So we got that, and it, oh, it's so good, and it was you know euphoric, mm -hmm. but nothing. And I said, well, I've just put it all away. But the picture that they came out with a couple months after they uh, notified me of their decision was uh, Tom Berenger in in uh, mm. Sniper. Sure. And that went on to do a sequel. And I yeah. understand they did several sequels. Yeah. yeah. So I lost out the Behringer. <laughs> but uh, I was just burned out. So I put it all away. Were you were you and, burned out? Because I think that's really encouraging. I, I would, I mean, as an objective third party, I'd be like, man, coming out of left field, you're just crushing it, getting those kind of responses. And that's a pretty high batting average. Yeah, it was, I was very happy and, and, you know, I was very, I was, I was, you know, like I say, I felt good about it, but it was an effort. And I just, uh, I knew enough about the business. And I mean, if, if, if Fitchpole was the, uh, the whole business, I probably was at the very bottom of the bowl with a, maybe, a, you know, just a little bit of water there. Uh, but it was a tough business to break into. And it's, uh, there's a lot of aspects to it, uh, sure. trying to get, get noticed. Uh, so I just, I, I was burned out with that part and I was sure. an executive and I was, you know, I had a lot of work going on. So I just put it all away again and uh, ended up going through the rest of my life. And about five years ago, I'm 76 now. 
and I'd been fully retired for a while doing a lot of other things I wouldn't want to do. And that story came back again. I said, I, I need to, I need to do something. So in, two, in 2019, going into 20, just before 2020 came around, uh, I pulled out everything, <clears throat> was looking at it and said, you know, I'm going to try writing a book. Of course, then COVID hits us. And I said, I'm not going anywhere. So <clears throat> I pulled it all out and I just started writing the book and it all just kind of came, <clears throat> came together. Uh, how, how was it revisiting the script? Was it, was it an adventure or was it like muscle memory? Did it come right back to you and all the stories, the incidents, et cetera? It helped. Uh, I took the screenplay as a baseline, but the screenplay okay. was based on just <clears throat> four months in Lamson from beginning to the end of the operation. And uh, the book ended up being a whole year, but the first half of the uh, first half of the book is Lamson. And basically the second half is, you know, doing other things until he rotates back home. Uh, so I was able to get in there and really flush out a story covering a whole year, but over half the book dealt with Lamson and get a lot of characters and flush some of them out and, and bring a lot of historical things in and so on and so forth. Uh, so it was much more, uh, I could do much more as people had said, when they first told me to write a book, you can flush your characters out more and you can yeah. do all these other things. But I did find writing a screenplay to be a lot of fun uh, because screenplay is a lot different. You know, only, Movies normally about two hours, a page is equivalent to a minute of screen time. You got to set the uh, exterior or the interior where you're at, and then you got the dialogue, and you got you really got to develop your characters through the dialogue. If there's a lot of development, but it's also about the action, the screen time. So it's a different. <clears throat> it's it's a lot more to me. I found it more formatted, more structured, if you will, the mm -hmm. screenplay part of it. Yeah, and it gave the director and the actors a lot more freedom to you know interact as they were filming it, so to speak. Uh, but uh, that experience really uh, uh, gave me some uh, something to build on when I decided to write the book. But I pulled it out, I read it, and it came back, and I had all these other ideas. So I just uh, I just dived into it. And Did you find the book? Nuts. Yeah, no, I mean that's uh, that's incredible. Um, that I mean, I, I, as somebody that toiled in, in Hollywood for, you know, about a decade. Uh, that That's an incredible batting average to have gotten the responses you got and the encouragement you got. That's really something. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, yeah, that's worth noting. Did you find it? This could be a weird question, but did you find that writing the book became more emotional than writing the screenplay? Because suddenly you have to get inside a character's head and talk about their thoughts. Was there any of that? Yes. Uh, yeah. Being candid about it, there are some scenes in the book or I can't see, there's some parts in the book that as I was writing, I was just tears just flying, going down, you know, just pouring out, not pouring out, but it was yeah. kind of emotional. It's bringing back some things because uh, I, like I said, I drew on some of my own stuff and I wanted to, when I got to that point, I knew I was putting something on paper that was going to yeah. grab people that read it because yeah. uh, it was certainly hitting me. So I found some of that. There's a there's a in the towards the end of the book when he loses his best friend uh, Cobra Pilot and he's there lying next to him and they're taking blood from his arm to his buddy who was uh, Greg and they lose him you know that was tough and I tried to capture that 
in in the book and everybody that well not everybody but a lot of people say when i got to that scene i was just devastated yeah that, that part of yeah the book. so so some of it hit me like that what was your battle rhythm in writing did you, what did you start to how did you start to find that you needed to work are you somebody that needed to be writing every day did you need to set aside a certain time did it have to be the same time every day what, what, what did you find that battle rhythm was like for you Oh, that's a good question. Uh, in my case, my whole life, well, most of my professional life was much more structured. Lots of meetings, mm -hmm. lots of interaction, lot just you know, you know how it is in in, in the work world. So I kind of grew up and and got got trained in that, and it was a part of me. Uh, but in writing, uh, keep in mind, I did a lot of writing as a in, in banking and consulting business, and then I taught college for about six years. So. And and so I did a lot of writing, but not creative writing. Yeah, okay. yeah. This was memo writing, you know, mm -hmm. research. Uh, <clears throat> so when I started, uh, I tried to keep a little bit of a structure. You know, I need to write a little bit and, you know, uh, and then uh, try to do a little bit every day or every other day. I didn't have any schedule. It's when I do it, I do mm -hmm. it. And, mm -hmm. But I did want to get to the end of that first book at some point. And when I got into it and got my rhythm and I was flushing my characters out and I became TJ a little bit, there's times when my wife would say, Larry, it's one o'clock in the morning. You got to get down here. You know, yeah. you go back, go to my office is upstairs and, you know, you got to get to bed. <laughs> so there were times when she had to pull me out of the office up here and get me to come down and eat my dinner. But uh, those, I call those, that's in my own terminology, right brain, left brain. When I was being creative, my right brain and I just wanted to get it down and get it on paper. Yeah. I could massage it later. And when I was in a role like that, which didn't come every day, sure. uh, you know, when it happened, it happened. And I didn't want to lose it until I just was exhausted or it ran out. And then other days when I was trying to write, if I didn't catch it, I would do more research and pull stuff into my uh, supporting docs that I could pull up on my computer and and look at this or look at that. So I'd be doing research when I wasn't feeling creative. But anyway, I, I tried to do a little bit at least every other day. And there were days when I just, you know, couldn't be pulled out of my office because it was I was on a yeah. roll. And, yeah. and there were other days when I couldn't get out of here fast enough because I wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> uh, <laughs> on, on days like that, did you make yourself, did you have any mechanism to force yourself to stay? Was there a, were you like, I've got to get three pages written or a certain number of words? Did you have anything like that? When I was being creative or? or when you were not being creative. Yeah. Uh, when it was like a yeah. slog. Yeah, sometimes uh, if I was trying to get some more information and do some more research to pull in to flush some more of the story out or get ready for the next chapter or something down the road, yeah, I'd say, Larry, you, you need to get some of this stuff. You just can't pull in a page or two or do you know find something mm. and then stop for a week. So yeah, I'd drive that a little bit, but you know, I'd also after a while I could figure out, uh, you know, just take a couple days off. This you know you. You're fully retired. You're not doing this mm. for a living. Uh, mm. You're doing this because you're enjoying it or you're, you want to get a story told and it'll be there. So, yeah, I just back off. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's a little bit. Of yeah, no, that, that makes, uh, I mean, that's a shockingly healthy mental approach to take to writing that I don't think many writers do um, for one reason or another, some of which are understandable because if you're, you're trying to make a living as a writer, that's one thing. 
which I don't know anybody that's trying to do that anymore, but, <laughs> but I think, I think you're, you're in a, a great, very mentally healthy space to do that. I want to back up and talk about your service because, um, I got so much more. I want to ask you that'll kind of be based on that. Mm-hmm. You in, you went into the military in 68, you were not drafted, right? You joined, you signed up. Uh, well, uh, actually I was, <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Yeah. Uh, I had been accepted to the, I graduated in June of 68 and, uh, had been accepted to the air forces flight training program. Uh, but to go to the flight training, I had to go through their OCS program, officer school. Sure. Uh, and the earliest they could start me was in October of 68. So I graduated in June. I could start I'd be sworn in and start in October, but um, my draft board, which was a small draft board in Arcadia, Florida, that I had registered with, uh, wouldn't give me a deferment from my graduation in June to sit wait until I could go into the Air Force. Wow. Those are different times back then. You know, 68, 69, the war was just, it was out of control. We were losing hundreds of men a week. Sure. Uh, so anyway, they wouldn't defer me, and they drafted me, and I reported in July. Uh, end up oh going to Fort Dix. Oh man, that's even worse. Okay, so uh, <laughs> then let me ask. So being sixty-eight, can you put us there? Put put us in sixty-eight. What was it like for you? What was it like? What was your headspace like? Even joining the military, obviously, you'd come from a father who was active duty Air Force, but you know the war that's going on. How did you feel about it? Uh, you were clearly running towards the sound of gunfire regardless, but I mean, what was your, what was going on in your head? How were you feeling about things at that point? Well, of course we, uh, you know, it's hard for people to understand, but 64 to 68, when I was in college, uh, the wars really started picking up in 65 and by 67, 68, it was, uh, it was just, a, you know, it was a, it's peak, if you will. Yeah. 69 to 70. And, uh, all all young men, which I was a, obviously part of, were uh, had to register for the draft and were subject to the draft, and were going to be drafted when they were turned eighteen or finished uh, whatever they were doing. I mean, there was deferments. In my case, going to college, I got the old standard S two student deferment, but I had to get that every year. And by my junior year, which was sixty seven, yeah, sixty six, sixty seven my draft board was coming after me every quarter saying, give us your paperwork. Cause if you're not still in school, you're coming to the service. Wow. So I lived with filing every quarter. And I think of that you're a young guy, 17, 18, 19, the war is going crazy. People are dying. Uh, you've got friends that are, you know, some of them losing some of them. So we just kind of lived with that. I won't say you got used to it. It was always in the back of your mind, but most fellows, including me, wanted to try and get the best we could. Because uh, we knew we were going to go into service at some point, almost all of us, unless you had connections or something, uh, something you were able to work out. So I, I, I thought I wanted to fly, so I tried. The Air Force got accepted, and I mentioned that, but then couldn't get me till October. And the draft board said, "You're sure. going." When that happened, I was pretty despondent. <laughs> you know, so, were you? Oh my yeah. God! <laughs> the Army going in. Everybody goes in the Army. Goes. It's drafted. Goes to Vietnam at some point, if not right after their training. Uh, so I ended up going to. Like I say Fort Dix was trained basic AIT as infantry. And while I was there, a lot of the guys that I trained with were combination of National Guard from Louisiana, 
and they were going mm-hmm. back and guard Louisiana because the National Guard really didn't get deployed. They used them for our current wars, but back then right, right. it was a safe haven, so to speak. Uh, and the other, a lot of the other guys like me were college grads, and they were coming after us for OCS, officer school. And uh, they kept, as when we were in advanced training, they kept hitting us with that. And a couple of us got together and said, you know, if we do that, that's six months in the States. And they say you get to stay six months. That's another wow. year. Wow. So uh, yeah, maybe the war will end. So, anyway. yeah, of course. Yeah. Let me just ask, had you, did you make the calculation to first try to become an Air Force pilot because you thought that would be the safer course of action and you're going to have to get pulled into the military one way or another and that was a better way to go? Or would you have done that regardless if there was a war going on or not? Uh, that's a good question. I, pro- If there wasn't a war, I might have because I grew up around Air right. Force. I mean, uh, I had tremendous respect for him, and uh, I thought this would be a cool career. Yeah. So I had harbored flying and, and doing that. But again, it's kind of hard to answer that because I grew up around Vietnam and it was just a matter of time. Uh, so I chose the Air Force because I had this thought I'd be, you know, one fly and be fun and, and, and so on. So uh, um, and I wanted to fly jets. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> and, the, and the army really foiled that plan. Okay, so now, yeah. so now you're at Infantry AIT. Did you end up going right from AIT to OCS as an infantry? Officer? Yeah, we we graduated in late November, uh, and a bunch of us got accepted OCS. And when they first approached us, they said we got three branches: uh, infantry, artillery, and armor. Now I had a degree in mathematics and and, and finance, and I thought, well, you know. Artillery wouldn't be too bad. They got to use math and, and angles and all that stuff. You know, we should have known better because, uh, you know, the Army right out of the gate, you, you never really know what's going to happen. <laughs> we all came down for infantry. So, yeah. Uh, uh, and we had a guy in there who was a lawyer in the group. Uh, and, and we had all different majors. But anyway, we all ended up OCS, went to Benning, trained there for six months, uh, graduated in the end of June. We're all second lieutenants. And, Back then in June of, uh, well, it was July of 1969, uh, we'd get six months in country and then we'd be shipped to Vietnam as platoon leaders. Uh, so I would be going to Nam in, in December as a platoon leader. Uh, when I graduated there, I was stationed there for six months and I was an instructor at the infantry school on their heavy weapons. And I was doing that for a couple months and I met a lot of helicopter pilots uh, on training when we were out in the field training and stuff. And they said, Make a long story. So I said, Larry, if you're going to go, you might have go as a helicopter pilot. You said you wanted to fly. It's just as dangerous, but at least you got to, you know, you can go back to the base camp and get a cot, maybe a hot meal and a cold shower, and you're not out in the boonies all the time. So anyway, I thought, why not? So I volunteered, got accepted, and uh, ended up going to flight school in 1970, the whole year of 70. So, and that was before, so basically you had one duty station, mm-hmm. and then you went right back into training as a pilot, to reclass as a pilot. Yeah. Wow. So you were really fingers crossed this war could end in the next year. And hopefully well, <laughs> while you're in all this training, that was part of my wrap up. <laughs> yeah. end, it's got to end. I was in the army going for you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my Lord. I was in the army two and a half years before I was actually shipped over to Vietnam. That's, that's I, incredible. I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask a really, uh, this could be a really dumb question, but it, it, the thought just crossed my mind. And I think it's because of the different difference in military service now or in the GWAT versus Vietnam when everyone was being drafted. Mm-hmm. Now, in my experience, you know, when people, 
got their jobs or went to the certain units or whatever, there was really a set that sense of pride of like, hell yeah, teeth on edge. Let's go get in the fight, ready to go do my thing. Was there that when you got out of infantry OCS, was there a sense of like, Hey, we're jocked up. We're ready to go fight. Or was it like, Hey man, uh, hopefully all this is done. And uh, we're just trying to survive right now. We're not, you know, we didn't set out on this course of action, but we're trying to make the best of it. Does that make sense? Am I asking a a decent question? Well, the answer to that would be, yeah, when, in my class, when we started, it was 220 of us in the, in the company and we graduated like 160 and I can't speak for the other fellows. I can, I knew the guys in my platoon real well. And I need most of the guys in the company, but you get to know the platoon guys real because you're real close. You know, you, and I'd say most of us, I'd say most of the guys in the company when we graduated were a little pumped up. You know, we'd gone right. through six months of training. We were, yeah. you know, we were masters of the universe. There wasn't anybody we couldn't kick their ass or, you know, kick them up a little bit. And, uh, and uh, we knew we were going to Vietnam. So we were pumped a little bit. But when you came back down to reality, it was still if we go to war, that's a nasty piece of business. And some of the fellows were looking forward to it. I think most of us were saying, you know, I don't really, I'm not real excited about it. Uh, but, you know, we made yeah. a commitment. We're going to go. So, uh, and uh, so yeah, it wasn't like you're going over as a unit. We'd all go over right. as replacements. Sure. It's, it's another aspect of the war that towards the end, it was just, it really had a negative effect on the military, particularly the army. Um, another piece of context, I, I just want to take the opportunity to ask you. How did you, I mean, 68, 69, I mean, you guys are all in training while anti-war movement is really starting to peak. Mm-hmm. Was there discussion of that? Was there a knowledge of that? I, I mean, was, how much did that affect your day-to-day life or your outlook or your mindset? You know, how did that impact you if it did? It did. Uh, I'll just speak to myself. I mean, we knew it was going on. We didn't have access to TVs a lot when we were in training or newspapers, but you know, there were, we, we knew enough about it. Uh, it was out there and it was, it was building, if you, if you will. We were still kind of immune to it because we were always on base. It was only when we'd get, occasionally get a chance to right. go off base uh, that we'd get a little more exposure. I'll digress a moment. When we were in advanced infantry training at Fort Dix, you had the 1968 Democratic Chicago Convention, and it was a huge riot, as everybody the police, the National Guard, our battalion, our training battalion at Fort Dix was put on standby to go there to augment the um, National Guard if we were needed. So we took a 48-hour stand down, and the first day they were training us on crowd control, a whole battalion out there learning how to march in company and do these big Vs and spread out and with your bayonets out and how to literally stab somebody in the leg to bring them down, not kill them, but bring them down. That's, they were serious and using gas mask and throwing, we trained all day. And then we, we, we were shacked up in a hangar and uh, all we were, we were ready to get in airplanes and be shipped over to Chicago the next day if we were needed. And that made a lot of guys mad. <laughs> Did it? In what way? <laughs> mad? Yeah. Explain that. In what way were they mad? Uh, here we were training uh, to be soldiers and training some of us, maybe all of us, to go to Vietnam and fight a war over here. Yet here we're spending a day learning how to uh, literally 
control our own population or a segment of our population and maybe do a little body harm to them. I mean, you know, they put us out there and uh, it got it got out of control. When you saw the pictures of what the cops and the National Guard did to these people and the people were doing to them, it was pretty nasty. So why are we, what, what's this all about? I don't want to go do that. It made us mad at them, uh, I guess, more than anything. But in general, it made us just mad that this is the United States of America. What's going on here? So it brought brought the reality a little more closer to home. I I, I hesitate to ask this because I, I we don't normally do very topical stuff here, but I just feel like I have to ask, being that you were so intimately involved in that period of time, and obviously you lived through the last couple of years, when there's so much hand-wringing now about oh, the state of the country, do you feel like it's better, worse, different than 1968-69? That's an excellent question. And that's come up a lot over the years Yeah, for the, the way you asked it. <clears throat> my answer has been, and I feel this way back then being right in the middle of it. Um, so to speak, I always felt in the back of my mind that, uh, we had adults running the country and there were enough people out there that we weren't going to go totally destroy ourselves. I mean, we had some buff stuff going on, you know, Chicago 68, you had Watts and we had other riots going around and, and, you know, it was always you kind of think the country's going to hell in a handbasket and it's going to fall off a cliff, but it never got that far. And there was always enough people that demonstrated some leadership and some maturity that started to bring it back. And, and you, you could pick any point in time back then and you go, I don't think that would happen, but I always felt that that was there just mm. was going to take a while. And, mm -hmm. and sure enough, it eventually emerged and, and yeah. things settled down going into the mid late seventies and then Reagan comes along and so on. Nowadays, the last three or four or five years, my best, I always just say we had adults back there that could come into the room. I don't think we have any adults in the room now. It's, it's, it's out of control. It's uh it, I don't want to get started down that road, but it's just a different ball game. And I fear to some extent for, you know, where we're headed because uh, it's not looking good. <laughs> I, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. It's um, I, I agree for what that's worth and we won't go down that rabbit hole too much further, but yeah, I, I agree with that, but it's interesting. Um, I, I appreciate that perspective because I think a lot of people like to do an apples to apples comparison with 68, 69 and, uh, yeah, I think, I, uh, yeah, that was my sense. And I wasn't alive then, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that that I'm not, there glad are to hear, similarities. <laughs> there's similarities, right, right. But there's significant, that significant difference, I think is a, I'm glad you said that. I think that's a worthwhile point to make. Let's um, pick up then from when you actually get into country. Mm -hmm. So when you get into Vietnam, is it everything you hoped it would be? <laughs> I mean, how did, that, <laughs> how did that strike you? I mean, how you were there? I mean, was, you know, what was your take? I mean, yeah. Did it live up to your fears or your expectations? What, what, what was that like for you? Well, you, you hear a lot of stories and you, of course, living for several years, watching the news and everything. Uh, uh, I didn't really know what to expect. I, I just thought everything wasn't, it wasn't going to be a good experience. I wasn't looking forward to it. And, uh, some of the training we got and some of the stories we heard in our classroom instruction and stuff were really quite, quite concerning and quite scary. Uh, and <clears throat> quick digress real quick again. When we, when I went over, uh, we flew out of, well, left the States, flew into Alaska, then Japan, and then into South Vietnam. 
And it was an airplane full of about 220 of us. And we flew to Tonsonu down at Saigon. And we were coming into their airspace. And the pilot comes on the, on the intercom and says, uh, gentlemen, uh, we are in Vietnam airspace. We have been put on a holding pattern out here so far up from Tonsonu. He said, when we get clearance, we're going to land, but it's going to be quick. The base is under rocket attack. <laughs> uh, so I'll let you know when we're going in. And, and when we do, we'll basically do a fast approach, get down, pull up to the hangar. Guys will jump on, push you off. And the guys that are going back in the plane will be getting on the plane and we're going to get out of there. So I don't know how long it was. And he comes on and says, OK, we've been cleared. We're going down. Next thing I know, we were just falling out of the sky. We land, we taxi up and and all the doors to the airplane open front and back and guys come in mm -hmm. on both sides. And we were comfortable in that plane. And I think most guys that went to Vietnam, one of the many things they'll probably remember is their first exposure to the climate and the smells. And when that doors open and that's, it just rushed in. And this was uh, January, early January, maybe the fifth or sixth. Uh, hot, humid smell, it just blew you away. And, oh my God, I mean, between the rocket attacks and this, I'm in Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they hustled us down the, uh, the, you know, the ramps and into this big hangar. And on one side, there was a rope line down the middle. On one side, we were hustled into, we were the new guys. On the other side was all these guys that were going back on the plane we just came in on. And some of them would go up to the rope line, taunting is the wrong word, but, you know, the new guys, yeah. you don't love it here, you know. Yeah. So, I got two hours and I'm out here. You got 365 days. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Thanks fellas. We need this. No, totally. <laughs> I mean, so yeah. that was my first impression. Oh, absolutely. I mean that while you were saying that I got chills because that's, that's so much the feeling when you see people getting on it and you're like, you are me a year from now and you're seeing them get on like that. I mean, and I, I just, this is just my personal interest. Did you look at them like differently? Was there a sense of like, okay, is this going to be me in a year? Am I going to be them? Am I, was there any of that sense or was, were you just head down and just trying to sprint and get on with your life? Well, I didn't engage any of them. I, I just kind of looked and watched yeah. some of it. I was back a little bit, but yeah, I had a little bit of that. I said, Oh geez, some of those guys look really bad. I mean, yeah. some of them just come out of the bush. And uh, anyway, I thought, you know, I hope I, you know, I don't know. Hopefully I go home alive and in one piece, but uh, yeah. and they're doing that. You yeah. know, it's what they had internally. So I had a little bit of that, but I, you know, after 36 or whatever it was, hours in planes and all that, yeah, we were yeah. all exhausted. We yeah. just wanted to get where we were going, but uh, I didn't give it. I don't remember giving it too much thought. Okay. Okay. But uh, and then after I got to my unit, yeah, no, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say after I got to my unit, the 101st, we came in on Tonsonut and Saigon, which was four core down there in the Delta and all mm -hmm. that. And, at that point in the war, Nixon had started Vietnamizing the Vietnamization of the war, and he is turning it over to them. And in 1970, they were standing down American units and giving it to the Vietnamese. And I think at that point, he had cut the troop strength from 550 down to about 300 or something. So it was dwindling quite. It had been wow. dwindling quite a bit. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> but down in that area, it was it was pretty quiet. And we th I thought, and I guess some of the other guys did. There was maybe 10 or 15 of us who were aviators, uh, Army aviators. And we thought, or I'll speak for myself, I thought, yeah, down here in Thompson, it's Saigon. I'm going to be in four corps. It's quiet. I'll just fly and have fun and see Saigon and go home after a year. And we went sent across base to the Army Depot for, for assignment. 
and we were there a couple of days and all the aviators that were there came down on orders for the 101st and everybody's looking at each other going the 101st. You haven't heard, you know, the rumor mill. Yeah. Well, they're up in i and they still go out looking for the bad guys. They're still fighting. And then, then we hear that they're the only division that hadn't been come, hasn't come down on stand down orders. Their, their job is to stay up there and keep the NV up, up there from coming further south while the Vietnamese were taking over I-4 Corps, 3 Corps, 2 Corps. So they were the blocking force and they weren't going anywhere. Like, oh my God, I just got here and we get to go up there. Wow. Anyway, yeah. got up there got assigned to my company and then uh, then started my war. <laughs> Were you excited or was it just fingers crossed and trying to get through it? I can't, I wasn't excited. Uh, I, I thought, you know, I'm here. I got a year. I'm going to need to learn what I can and be serious about it. Cause I do want to go home in one piece. Um, so I, I took it, uh, you know, I took the whole thing seriously uh, I mean, um, learn what I could learn from the guys that have been there, um, do what I was told to do at that point. Uh, I was a gung ho aviator, not necessarily, but, uh, I did enjoy flying and, you know, I hadn't seen combat yet. So it was still fun's the wrong word, but it, I enjoyed it. And I look forward to it and, and flying missions and sorties and all that gave me a sense of accomplishment each day. Uh, <clears throat> But after I got hit the first time, uh, it, was, I, it was like early part of February. It was the first time they called busting your cherry. Uh, we, we got racked up pretty bad going into a hot, hot LZ. I thought, this ain't fun anymore. <laughs> yeah. I've just got here. I've been here a month, and uh, I'm going to have to do this God, how, who knows how long. So uh, I'd always approached everything with a sense of seriousness. Yeah. But I also, after that, that, you know, this is for real. It's not a movie. It's for yeah. real. And uh, uh, these guys play serious, these NVA guys on the ground. So um, I thought I just got to do what I can and, and uh, see what happens. And it took a while to get used to get that mindset for me. But you know, eventually. What was morale like when you got there? And did you see a change over the time that you were there? Well, I was uh, I was an aviation unit, uh, right. and the aviation units in general. Two things I'll say: one, the 101st had a pretty good reputation throughout the war, and even at that point, of being a pretty pretty stout uh, fighting force. They had their problems; they had race issues, and so they had drugs. I mean, I'm not, they, and they had uh, they had their uh, problems with different different people. But overall, they were still considered a good division and a good fighting force. There were many of them. But at that point in the war, uh, there had been a lot of more problems in many units. And 101st seemed to be uh, have overall the less of them, if you will. So okay. it, was a pretty, it was a good unit. Uh, and then aviation companies and units, they in general had a high state of morale, if you will, or uh, a, a certain professionalism and camaraderie. I mean, it was a serious business being in a helicopter crew. Uh, Chinooks, Cobras, Loaches, Hueys. Um, I mean, they, they, not to say we didn't have our, you know, we had, didn't have our problems too occasionally, but overall the morale was good. The esprit de corps was good. Um, everybody took their job seriously. Um, there were times when guys would get upset or, you know, there would be some issues here and there. So, and, and when I got to my unit, the morale, I thought the morale was good overall and good guys and 
assimilated pretty quick. But when we got into Lomson, which started in February and ran through mid-April, that was 60 some days of pure hell flying out of Quezon into Laos. Uh, and the morale was suffering across the board because put that in perspective, Lomson was that incursion went deep into Laos that the South Vietnamese were doing and they didn't have helicopter force. So the Americans 101st was tasked with providing them that support and some other units were brought up, but Americans weren't allowed to go into Laos. We had, right. Nixon had been restricted. We could fly them in, but we, we couldn't send any ground troops in. So the Americans ended up being their air support. 101st had about 680 helicopters in it. And before the operation ended, they brought in another 100 plus or minus from other units because 101st was sustaining so many uh, casualties and, and downed aircraft. At the end of that 60 days, um, there were like uh, close to 800 helicopters involved 111 were shot down in Laos and never recovered. 111 shot down. Uh, now, most in cases we get the crews out, but the helicopters couldn't be extracted for any number of reasons. And then of the others, uh, of the remaining helicopters, 800 plus force, there were 620 some that were classified as battle damage. Mm. 620 some. Of those, 20% were so badly shot up we couldn't fly them. We just parked them and used them for parts. Uh, so in 60 days, the helicopter force took an incredible beating and we lost like 57 uh, or 78, uh, 78 crew members were killed over there. Another 60, some were wounded and I think several went missing, just helicopter crews in layouts. Um, I three times was shot up and shot down in the Chinook. Were you actually, were you shot down? Did you actually three times. You didn't want to crash in Laos if you could. We were able to get back. <laughs> we were able to get back inside South Vietnam when we put it down two of the three times. Uh, one time we, we we weren't fortunate. We got real close, but had to put it on what was called Route 9 inside Laos, close to Viet. And a couple of Marine Hueys uh, came in right behind us and, and got us and, and you know, picked us up before anything happened. Uh, whenever a helicopter was going down in Laos, everybody came to their rescue because really? you could be the guy on the ground. Yeah. You, didn't leave, you just didn't want to leave anybody down there. So every attempt was always made to extract the crews that would go down to Laos. And we, we were very successful. Like, I don't know the exact number, but we were successful at doing that. But when you 111 helicopters shot down and left there, and that's not counting the number that were shot down that we went in and extracted as a Chinook, crews were sent in, if they could bring a helicopter from Laos, extract it back, they would send us in to pull it out, do a sling sure. load, sure. bring it back and save it. So I don't know how many of those were saved, but there were a few of those saved and they weren't counted as shot down in Laos. They were they were airlifted back to South Korea. Military's got oh. a great way of coming Yeah, yeah, up. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can always fudge the metrics in any number of directions. Yeah. First, let me ask about your resiliency during that time when it really started getting hot. What were your mm -hmm. coping mechanisms? What did you find yourself gravitating towards? Did you start to get super religious? Did you like pop pills? Like what, what, what was keeping you in, in, in place? What was keeping your, your head in the right space? You know, that's a good question. And that's a tough one to answer. Uh, I'm here. So I, I did make it back. Um, 
Sometimes we took rounds into the canopy, which shatter some of the plexiglass off. So a lot of noise, a lot of guys yelling, um, and you're so busy flying, just wanting to keep it in the air and get back. I always just remember the first couple of times uh, when something would happen, it just it just seemed like it'd be slow motion. One time the guy flying in my left seat got hit in the, with, uh, we got hit in the cockpit and he took a lot of shrapnel and he was, he was a mess. And I just remember looking over at him and everything was just really slow. Smoke was in the yeah. cockpit and all that. Uh, but just dealt with it. Uh, after a couple, after a little bit, I'm not saying you ever get used to it, but uh, uh, you lived in fear of it happening, but there was nothing you can do about it. So I guess you kind of resigned yourself to that fact. I always tried to fly what I called in compartments or serve over compartments. When I go and get my draw, my, I knew I was flying the next day when I'd have breakfast and draw my gear. I just started shutting everything down. There was nobody else but me, my crew, and we were going to come back that night. Uh, so we'd go out and free flight, launch, and do our thing, and then hopefully come back that night. And then do it all over again the next morning. So I just literally tried to block everything out. And I was, I was pretty good at that. But it's when I come back that night, get in my room, take a shower, and sit there and look, <laughs> look at my wife's pictures and all of the tapes we had. And you go, oh, my God, how did I do that? Yeah. She'd saddle up the next day and go out and do it again. So trying to be in data compartments, um, just deal with every situation. I will say this, and I, uh, training is crucial. I mean, it's when every time it was just automatic. I mean, I was just doing things without thinking. It, everything's happened so fast around you. You don't have time to, well, should I do this or should I do that? You just got to do it. Maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but we were trained well as aviators and, and we got enough experience. So you just reacted. You could feel the helicopter and you just did what you could to get it back or get it on the ground without blowing up or, you know, crashing it and everybody dying. So it was just a reactionary and your training kicked in and that helped a lot. It was after it was over, it was tough. You know, when it was over, you just. A uh, hundred, I, I, yeah, I would, that's what I would imagine. Um, I'm actually going to read you back to you if that's not too weird, because okay. there's there's a paragraph that I read in A Legacy of Honor that <laughs> made me want to ask you a ton of questions. So I'm going to just read the paragraph. Sure. It's, right. um, let me see. On, on the Google thing I have, it's page 43, but it's thereabouts in the book. Landing upright in the trench, I impale one of the Huns. I hear his bones cracking as my steel bayonet goes completely through his body and bursts out of his back. Blood flows from his fatal wound as he gasps for air. His eyes glaze over as life slowly fades from his body. The look of fear I first saw in his eyes changes to a peaceful expression as he sighs a final weak breath. His body goes limp at the end of my bayonet as he dies. All he was or ever would have been is gone with his last heartbeat. My bayonet must have penetrated some of his bone structure and become lodged so deep that I can't pull it out. I push him to the ground with my rifle still sticking up from his chest. I'm reading that because when I read that, I was really curious as to how it felt for you to write that. Um, writing stuff with such viscera and walking a mile in those shoes was there catharsis? Was it difficult? 
was, you know, I mean, I, I, I can only imagine like conjuring those things up years removed from the life and death business, but you know, that kind of imagery, that kind of sense memory. I'm just curious how moments like that in your writing affected you and how, and how you felt about them when they were happening. If there was a sense of relief, that you were able to capture it and get it on the page as well as you did. Well, uh, not having actually experienced that, uh, I was so into my character, uh, Sam, mm. that I became him pretty quick. Mm. And I tried to live through him as I wrote. And uh, I have, you know, I had read books, I had seen documentaries, I talked to veterans, I overheard some stories, so on and so forth. And when I was so into it, uh, and I wanted the reader to become, in that case, the one we're talking about now, uh, the patriarch. I wanted to become Sam and, uh, and, and see what he was doing because trench warfare, World War One, was horrific. I mean, these men, they, they would engage each other when they get, when they did engage in the trenches or in no man's land, usually it was in the trenches whenever they got overrun. It was just, it was barbaric. Uh, not that it wasn't prior to Civil War and go all these wars, but these men were face to face and they would beat each other to death with trenching tools. Uh, anything they could get their hands on if they ran out of bullets. They didn't have automatic weapons. They, theirs were single shot, bold action. So they had to be real quick. And if they weren't quick enough, they had to use their hands or whatever they had. So I tried to capture that. I wanted the reader to become Sam and put him, put him through some of that so that when he does eventually survive and go home and well, of course, you read the book. That yeah. What he, he and his compatriots had to deal with when they came back, uh, you would have a better appreciation for wow, and why did they did not? Why didn't they treat him better? Why did they just stay? <laughs> right. I mean, really. Right. So I, I wanted to really put the people. I mean, I had a lot of readers, particularly ladies. Women seem to enjoy my book too. Enjoy may be the wrong word, but I get a lot of women that read mm. my my books and, and you know, really are quite moved by. Them. But with their their general comment is, uh, I sure was glad to get out of the trenches. <laughs> yeah, I, I well, and I guess that that's what also stood out to me is because knowing your knowing just kind of the wave tops of your military experience when I read the book, and going okay, he was a helicopter pilot and and you know saw an awful lot in Vietnam. But this is a very different war that you've mm -hmm. now placed yourself in with a very different set of circumstances and <laughs> the life and life and death issues don't change, but the setting of it all changes radically. And I guess that's also what I was wondering is could you, could you feel catharsis in that? Because it's not, it's not your experiences now and it's not even the same setting or the same, you know, granular details as the life and death experiences you had, but mm -hmm. are you still able to channel an emotional truth in all of that? which I think radiates. And I will say for me, I, I recoil at people that really write great blood and gut stuff when they haven't lived it, because I mm -hmm. feel like that's just indulgent and, and unnecessary and, and, uh, self-indulgent. So when you, to know your background and hear you writing it, I don't know, it was very interesting to me. And I guess I just wonder how it was, how it felt for you to insert yourself into world war one, when that was such a different war zone than your war zone. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how I could answer that. Uh, 
I, I'm a, I'm a, a history buff and particularly our wars. I've, I've read a lot uh, about World War One, but like most people, grew up around World War Two guys and read right. a whole bunch. I even met Audie Murphy when I was a young boy. Wow. Wow. You know, that's <laughs> another story. Uh, <laughs> I've met a lot of, uh, of military heroes. World War II guys are my heroes. So I just kind of grew up around all that. Uh, but um, back to your question. Now, I wasn't there, uh, but I had enough of a, a visualization of some of that from my interactions with World War I guys when they would talk a little bit. Uh, and from some of the documentaries I've seen and some from movies I've seen and, and, and books I've read. So, and then my own personal experience, not fighting out of the trenches, but, but if you're an individual, in my own opinion, and you see combat, you're, you're forever carry some of that with you and it changes you. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, it doesn't matter what war you're in. If you're in combat, the ultimate uh, sacrifice would be your life. So, uh, there's some similarities no matter what war. And I, and I, having experienced that, I, I could draw on that to create, help create the scene of what you read and some of the others. I could feel, if I was tapped into that, I could feel some of that. And I just let it flow out. Uh, I don't know um, if you, well, if in the back of that book, I in my acknowledgments, I wrote mm -hmm. the first two paragraphs about my grandfather and having uh, what he did. And I, I could I drew a little bit on some of those recollections. I was in the fifth grade, but I was old enough at that point mm -hmm. to under not understand, but not forget some of the stuff I heard at two, three, four o'clock in the morning. Uh, so I I drew a little bit on some of that, uh, and these guys lived it. Uh, so uh, it, well, it's funny because I feel like for many GWAT veterans, we're hyper aware that we were not in Vietnam. Like it was not that battlefield. It was just wildly different. And Vietnam has, a, you know, we grew up on Vietnam war stories and all that, but it just, the stakes, the nature of it, um, the environment seems foreign, so much more chaotic than, than the one we were in. And then for Vietnam era veterans, I'm guessing world war one probably felt about the same way, just completely foreign, savage existence that was totally apart and more horrific than the one you were in even you know it's it's funny how uh that that declination happens and i was thinking about that because you were writing this trilogy is that calculated into your books the changing nature of warfare that's good that yeah yeah that's what i'm trying to capture a little bit i'm not doing it from a i'm not trying to write, teach a history lesson but i'm one of my challenges is, and is to get into the era of that time, the weaponry, the terminology, a little bit about their mannerisms, how they spoke, and, so, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, and I think I, I think I, I feel good about book one. Uh, I've just book two is now being edited, and I same approach. It starts with uh, my main character flying uh, his B-17 on the first deep bombing raid into Germany uh, in 43. Um, and that was a horrific, horrific uh, bombing mission. These guys went in uh, over 300, some bomb B-17s, and they didn't have any fighter protection. The fighters could not go that deep because they didn't have the fuel uh, sure. and they didn't have the fuel pods. So the bombers were left to themselves to fly in in their box formation. 
and they took a terrible beating. Uh, it was just, it was, and I, I, I opened the book with that chap, the first chapter with that mission and my main character flying it. And my editor said, oh, my God, Larry, <laughs> we went from the trenches to the air yeah. and you've captured the same thing in the air. I said, well, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, so uh, I did a lot of research for that. Of course, I grew up around these guys, so I could I could draw a little bit more on mm -hmm. some of what I heard from them and how they spoke. And, and World War Two kind of grew up watching those movies and, and, and all that. Yeah. stuff. But I tried to capture that. And then I went to the my character goes through World War II. He gets out after the war. He gets called back in uh, when the Korean War starts. And he gets transitioned to B-29s. He goes and flies B-29s over Korea out of Okinawa. I had no idea what those men went through. And I, my eyes just popped when I, when I learned yeah. some of that. So I tried to capture that. And then he stays in, goes back to the States. He'll, be in, uh, he'll work his way up. He's a protege of General Curtis LeMay and, the, and part oh, of SAC. Yeah. And there'll be the uh, Bay of Pigs, and then there'll be the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then there'll be the beginning of the Vietnam War in the early stages. So all that is captured, and you'll see changes. So I'm, I'm trying to be sensitive to that and, and bring it out a little bit. It's probably more subtle in this book, book two, because it does change. And now for book three, oh, my God, there's a big difference. And uh, I'm going to be course. struggling to try and capture some of that. But. Oh, that's that's. I mean, I'm I'm really interested to see how that unspools. And I want to ask you, what is the difference between World War One, World War Two, Vietnam era veterans? Can you tell a difference, especially when you're going through the effort of writing them? Mm -hmm. What's the outlook? And I'll, let me, let me preface this a little bit and give you time to think. Just by saying, reading about Sam, he did not strike me at all as a man of 2023. I was like, yeah, this is a man that existed then. There was a stoicism. There was a stiff upper lip-ism that I was like, yeah, this is, uh, and, and going back to work at the steel mill or finding the job at the steel mill and, you know, his whole background and everything. I, I was like, I was like, you've captured someone of truly of a different era. And so in doing all that and in writing these books, yeah, what are you seeing as the differences culturally, generationally between the veterans of those wars? I think the, the, the fellows that were in World War One and fought, they, in my own opinion, they were, uh, their upbringing and everything kind of made them independent, um, self-sufficient, um, proud. Uh, they, they did have a sense of, I'm American, this is my country. They didn't wear it, but, you know, they had that. It was just part of, part of them in general. Of course, we had a lot of new recent immigrants that came into the country going into the end of 1800, early 19. So a lot of them were first generation, but, you know, but they loved, they came here and they became assimilated quickly. They became, tried to become part of America. Uh, so I think there was a certain sense of being an American and being in America. Uh, and uh, they identified with each other up to a point and they interacted. They seemed to socialize, if that's the right word, better, colleagues better. It was all about having friends. Mm. They didn't call themselves guys and they, they were boys and they were men and, and, and they were the fellas. Uh, there was a certain, uh, we're all in it and they, uh, and they stuck together, so to speak. Um, World War II, the, the, the guys that were in World War II were the sons of the men that fought some of them of World War I and the product of, of that era. 
they had a lot of the similarities, I think, of the World War I generation. But that war, World War II, became so much more mechanized and so much more diverse. And we had a European, German, and Italian enemies, and we had Japanese on the Pacific side, different cultures, different some differences between the two. Uh, so it was more diversified in that sense. I think the guys fighting in Europe, uh, they 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 were fighting an enemy that they I, I wouldn't say identified with, but the United States had a large German population, right. and uh, and the Germans in the early part of it, they didn't really want to take us on. But that's another story. Uh-huh. Uh, but they could you know they could identify more with the Germans, I think, and. Uh, the German prisoners were treated better. We, of course, we didn't have a whole lot of Japanese prisoners. They just didn't take prisoners. But um, so they, they identified more there. But on, in Japan, it was it was a different story. The Japanese, uh, they bombed us. They did what they did. They would fight to the death. And uh, they had there was a different mindset generally fighting the Japanese. And this impacted the two to two groups a little differently, I think, uh, in, mm. their, in their general experiences. Uh, yeah, this, but again, these men were all Americans. Uh, they were 16 million plus of them. Uh, they saw this as a war of the good guys versus the bad guys back then, right or wrong. And, uh, and they, they fought together as units and, and their buddies and all. But with 16 million men, you're going to have some characters in there somewhere. Uh, <laughs> you know, but you're still going to have a lot of guys that, you know, are stand up guys and, you think about Omaha Beach, for instance, on the first two waves. My uncle was on Omaha Beach in the third wave. Uh, he survived that day, but he was severely wounded on the fourth day by a German mortar attack. But those guys in the first, second, and third wave, as they started to break off the beach and go up those hills, guys would literally run up through the minefields, get blown up, and the next guy would run ahead of them so they could clear a path for guys to get come up that to get to the top to stop the guns from killing everybody on the beach. Now, who in their right mind would do that? But they did it. And, uh, you know, it's like, hey, how many guys would do that today? I wouldn't want to do that. I'm not saying I wouldn't, but I wouldn't say I would either. But what kind of courage and dedication yeah. does that take? I mean, that shows a certain caring for their their comrades who are on the beach still. Yeah. If you can get up there and silence those German machine guns, you're going to save guys down here. So they're literally sacrificing their limbs to get guys to the top to take them out. And, and that kind of thing went on all over the place in World War II. Went on to some extent in Korea and, and certainly in Vietnam. Well, it's Korea and in Vietnam too, and, and even to today. You've always sure. got fellows sure. that self-sacrifice for their fellow comrades. But that was that was prevalent back in World War II. So there were similarities, I think, in, in that generation from their fathers, but a little diverse. My generation that fought in Vietnam. Uh, there was we we were further away from uh, our parents' generation. I think in our generation we were the, we started with the, you know the love child, the uh, the, uh, the dope and the, and the freedoms and the uh, uh, hippies and all those things. There was a certain segment of our generation that kind of went that way, and then there was another segment that was still kind of their fathers, if you will, that went this way. And America's right, and America needs to do this and that. So there was more of a diversification in the generation that ended up fighting the Vietnam War, because they certainly didn't line up to go to Vietnam <laughs> like yeah. they did part of World War II. Uh, and so it, it was a, a, a different uh, war, a different fighting, a different strategy. And uh, I think there were still a lot of good people in our generation that, that were involved that uh, 
got disillusioned the longer the war went on. Uh, you know, you're talking about a 12-year war there. Yeah. Guys are dying, no strategy. It's contained. You got everybody going in different yeah. directions. Um, and uh, it's like, why is this? World War II, we declared uh, unconditional surrender. War. We're going to take you out until you surrender. And, and, and we did that. And we ultimately won and brought both countries back. And they, well, they were close allies. I don't know where they are now in the spectrum. <laughs> but we didn't do that in, in Korea or yeah. Vietnam. We went to a whole yeah. different strategy. You can blame it all on the nuclear weapons. And that's certainly you can't roll that out. Sure. But uh, you can't just use that as an excuse every time. You know, you're going yeah. to send men and women to war. Damn it. Make a have a strategy to get in and get out with your stated objectives. Well, that's that's an interesting aspect of the books, or at least of the first book uh, that I read, um, because it seemed like, look, if you're covering World War One, World War Two, and Vietnam, I mean, well, I guess you could put Korea sort of in this category as well. But you're covering two of those are relatively controversial wars, and mm-hmm. one isn't. Yet it was a book that was devoid of geopolitical or even just political. Uh, you know, denunciations or, or uh, you know, um, kind of uh, political revenge of saying, hey, this one character is now going to be a, a vocal mouthpiece against, uh, you know, the administration or something. And I thought that was interesting. And I thought that was also probably, and I'm assuming, because I have no basis of, of fact for this, but I'm assuming that's also very true to the character, that the character is not somebody that's looking to rabble rouse. He's not this was this was before the time of the anti-hero and the and the pushback, right? Um, so I guess I'm in form of a question. How much do the geopolitics or just the politics of war enter into your books? How much do you see them entering into your books? Well, World War One, you've read that one. Um, I didn't really make an issue out of anything. Mm-hmm. I did touch on like Switzerland. Right. You know, putting stuff out. I bring that up a little more in book two because the same thing happens. They favored the Germans, really. And some of the things Switzerland did uh, in World War II for aviators was pretty interesting. Uh, but uh, didn't do it in that. I, I didn't really do it in, in World War II because, you know, I think in World War One how we got into the war and how, uh, you know, the lead up to it and why we went in. I, I, I did bring that out, but I'll let people find their own opinion because it was kind of like, some people didn't want to go and other people mm-hmm. thought it was it kind of a, we got to go swept the country. Sure. And let me digress. That's one of the reasons why the first division to go over was named the rainbow division. I put that little segment yeah. in there. That was, interesting. Uh, there, was such, yeah. there was such a fever to go to the war to, to fight the Huns uh, that a lot of the national guard units wanted to be the, the unit to go. And they were afraid that if they just picked one state's division, they would make mad, make everybody else mad. So that kind of gives you a little bit of the mindset of people, at least in charge. And I think the American population in general at that point. World War II it was a whole different thing. The Japanese attacked us. The Germans declared war. They were doing this and we're going to go get them and end it. And so there was this and that that was a big fever in the early part. I think that started to wane a little bit, too, towards the end of that war, because we had a lot of massive casualties. And then when the Japanese uh, with Iwo Jima and Okinawa, they thought, you know, if we got to go into Japan, we're going to lose a million men. So I think the American population was getting a little burned out with the war at that point. Uh, <clears throat> maybe a little earlier than that, but still. Now with Korea, it's like 
another funny story. And I bet that in my book too, when it comes out, my dad was called back in and went to Korea. And when he came back after the war, he was from the little town of Louisville, Ohio, outside of camp. And of course he had me and my brothers, we were small then, but uh, he was, we were visiting. We, we lived with my grandparents for a couple of weeks until he got reassigned somewhere else. <laughs> and dad would always tell me the story when I was older. So, you know, Larry, he said, the only thing I say about Korea, he said, I come back from being in Korea for two years and I'm walking down the street with all these guys I grew up with and everything. And they all, the same question, where have you been for the last two years, Sam? Where have you been? So I really was getting burned out about that. And he said, you ever heard of a place called Korea? That summarized the wow. attitude of the American population. Where's Korea? If you weren't directly infected, you knew nothing about it or didn't care. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, a harbinger of things to come. Yeah. yeah. I put that in book two with that wow. war. It's just, well, it's just a footnote in history. And they even call it the Forgotten War. Yeah. 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 Go figure. Um, you're I'm I'm stunned at how quickly you write. I, I think that's I think there are probably writers that are listening to this that are gonna be banging their heads off the walls um in, in in dismay of how quickly you churn out material. Um being that you're speeding your way through this trilogy, do you have more coming? Are there other I don't have coming? anything specific at this point. Um um, in the early part of book three, which I think is going to be a pretty big challenge for me for a lot of reasons. So that's probably going to take a little longer. Why? Uh, what are the reasons? Long. Well, I've got to get into my mindset of my two brothers and kind of figure out some of the okay. aspects of, of their service. Uh, I do know the actions they were in and I can research those actions. And again, it's historical fiction. So I've got liberties there. Yeah. I can put them in situations they, they weren't in and embellish and, and, and those kinds of things. So, but that's going to require more research. Uh, for the uh, for the oldest son, which is loosely based on me, I, I've got the background and still I'm embedding it uh, in with some of the research. Like in book three, my main, Alan, the oldest son, he serves in Vietnam with the 101st, but he's an infantry officer on the ground. So I'm telling it from that perspective. I didn't want him to be a helicopter pilot again because of chariots. Gotcha. So I made yep. him a ground pounder, a, a grunt. And so I'm, I'm, I've already written several uh, uh, chapters and I had to research Battle of Ripcord, for instance, and I needed to research the Battle of uh, Hamburger Hill, both of which I knew a little bit about, but I wanted to know a lot more because I put him in both of those battles mm. as part of mm -hmm. his experiences. Um, so that, that that one's not too hard for me to write. The other two, hard may be the wrong word. They're just going to take a little more time. Could be a little more challenging. And then I got to take these three stories and bring them together and make them flow across the timeline. You know, first, yeah. Yeah. If, if this makes sense, if I got three characters uh, and I want to try and tell their story a little bit, you know, like it's got to be, I, well, I don't have to be, but I want to make it chronological. So they've got interaction at different points. But I thought, you know, I can't start with Alan and then jump to, to Lee and then jump to, to, uh, to uh, Scott uh, and keep a storyline in my character straight. I'd be playing in three different characters with my mind. Maybe what I would do is write the story of Alan first uh, and build that in a series of chapters. Just don't number them, but just give them names and then do the thing for same thing for uh, for us. Uh, Lee, and then the same thing for Scott, then stand back and take them and fit them in like a puzzle. 
you know, along a line, chronological yeah. line, and maybe have a few connecting chapters. I draft just because during that book, the patriarch will, uh, will will eventually die from his World War One, and uh, that'll bring the whole family together for a, for a mm. for a funeral there in Arlington for him. But uh, so there'll be some chapters that'll tie some loose ends from characters from book one and two. But uh, so that's how I chose to to, to draft this up. So it's going to be going to be interesting. <laughs> you, you, Larry, that reminds me, I didn't ask before. Do you structure all your books ahead of time? Are you an outline first, write second kind of person? Uh, combination. I do. Uh, well, in the case of the trilogy, I <clears throat> I did this high level concept memo for Frank, the publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when we when we said, let's do it. I went in and I came up with a little bit of a high level storyline for what became book one, book two, and book three. And then of course I wrote book one. And as I got in there, I, I wanted to, I wanted, I knew I wanted to have these different battles. And so I came up with, excuse me, a little more of a timeline for book one. And, uh, and, and then I had some main characters. So I did a little character thing, you know, this is, uh, Sam is this, and he's he's like this, and you maybe experience some of it in each of these folks. And then uh, I just uh, sat down, started writing. I, I wanted to find my character, and when I found my character, I just and I felt good about. It, I just turned him loose and said, "Okay, take me where you want to go." That's awesome. <laughs> That's and that shows that what stuns me isn't just how quickly you've written, but also how comprehensive and cohesive it seems. And it seems like it is you. The character is driving it, and that you clearly know who this is i want to ask you a, a kind of an unfair question because i don't know if there's any way you would know this could you have written these books in the 80s would it have helped would it have hurt to have written them earlier could you have- uh <clears throat> i i don't i don't honestly know i did try that screenplay uh the pack yeah. yeah uh well it was actually 90 and 91 uh, and that was the, everybody said, I've been asked the question, was that mythologic for you? And I said, well, it was a little bit. Uh, I mean, there were some scenes in that that carried, and I expanded on the book that were uh, pretty close to home and, you know, kind of emotional. But writing the book was whole different. I mean, I mean, really getting in there and developing it and trying to create the scene. I mean, that was really bringing back some memories. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't I don't know. I, didn't, I really wouldn't have had the time to do what I'm doing uh, with these books uh, now. Uh, because of the time it's taking. Yeah. Because uh, I was in, you know, like, so I was in the banking industry there at that time and uh, was an executive flying around, traveling a lot. Of course. Yeah. So, I mean, it's something I wanted to do and it wasn't a hobby. It was just something I, I seemed to enjoy, but there was a point where I had, <laughs> I, you know, I could only go so far. Well, th- that's why, that's why I'm getting at is it feels like this is the right time to be doing it when you have time to fully dedicate to it. Yeah. Larry, tell everybody uh, wh- how they need to be, how and where they need to be getting the book, how they need to be following you, if there's social media, if there's any website, all that information so people can find out more. Well, my books are on uh, carried on uh, several platforms, Amazon being the big one, Barnes & Noble, uh, BAM, Books A Million, and then Indie, Independent Books. So you can uh, order them. Uh, they're on paperback or e- e-book in all platforms. You can order them through any one of those, or you can go to your local bookstore, which I like to encourage you know, people in the, to, to support them. Uh, I do have my website. If you go to my website, uh, you can find out a little bit about myself, about the books, the different reviews that I've had that are posted on that, uh, some of the podcasts I've done. 
on the reserve years, I'll put it out on my website, <laughs> send it out on my social media. Uh, and uh, you can, from there, if you want to buy any of the books that are currently out there, you just hit buy the book and it'll bring that up, the five, the four platforms and, you, and hit whichever platform takes you right to there and you can you know, take it right to my book. So uh, you go to my website, it's Larry Freeland, LarryFreeland.com, all lowercase. And uh, that'll uh, tell you a little bit about whatever you want to know. And there's uh, quite a bit out there. I'm pretty proud of it. My, my web designer has built it for me and maintains it. And, uh, so uh, that's, I would tell people just to do that. And you could uh, decide what you want to do, what you want to read. And, uh, they should. So so. It's a beautiful site. It's a beautiful site and very cool pictures on there too, I should say. <laughs> really, uh, you, you really come away with it. Feeling like you know a little bit more about Larry and uh, the man behind the words. Listen, Larry, uh, it's a blast, man. This is a blast. Stay in touch. Let's do this again. I really sure. thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for inviting me and having me on. That was Larry Freeland's profile in Havoc. Such a great guy to talk to. Um, I really enjoyed that. And I really, um, yeah, felt like I wanted to take the opportunity to pick his brain about a lot of things. Um, I think veterans more than most revere their elders, especially when their elders are also veterans. Um, I think we do look for like minds, like experiences, common operating pictures. Um, and I, I felt like I had that opportunity with Larry. So by all means, go out, buy the Patriarch, buy Chariots in the Sky. They're great books. They're worth your time and money. Especially if you're interested in World War One, which does seem like it's having a bit of a renaissance in the writing industry right now. And to have a combat veteran write about it, I think, is worthwhile. Okay, um, I start off this episode by thanking our episode's first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. Now I'd like to take a second and thank this episode's other sponsor, Veterans Repertory Theater, which, of course, is my nonprofit. So Veterans Repertory Theater, for those of you that are not aware, is... A nonprofit 501c3 organization dedicated to, um, what, what can I say? We provide a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events. Um, there is a ton to say about that rep. I won't get into it all right now, mostly because it's late. Um, I think the best thing to do is to tell you to go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. While you're there, go ahead and subscribe to our literary blog. It doubles as our mailing list. That means that every single day in your email inbox, you will receive an email with a little snippet of veteran writing, followed by a couple of shameless plugs. And we have got we have a lot of people signed up now um, on the blog and on the mailing list which is um, a real honor that people are so captivated with the writing because it's a lot. I get it. We email you every day with a, you know, another piece of veteran writing, but um, man, it exposes you to some really cool writers that are emerging out of the veteran community. So we hope you'll go on there and sign up so you can hear everything we're doing, get it from us right when we're ready to announce things. Uh, we do have an awful lot of work coming up, um, but I won't bore you with all the specifics now. Sign up on the literary blog, sign up to the mailing list. It is a free subscription. 
and we'll give you all those details. I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, for putting this all together at the 11th hour, as always. <laughs> I hate to do that to him, but I deeply appreciate that he does. Uh, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of everyone here at Havoc Journal. See you next time for another profile in Havoc. <laughs>